Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. Welcome all to another episode of Woods and Waters Project Podcast. I'm your host, Steph, and I am so excited you guys are here today. If you get a little nerdy like me, I love hearing about wildlife numbers, where they're at, what's their population doing, uh, just overall, like the effect that hunters have on them, um, other, other things like habitat and just the way the world has changed. And this animal that we're talking about in particular is a favorite of mine. If you don't know what a gray fox is, I urge you to do a quick Google search, uh, look it up. Here in my home state of Iowa, uh, they do they do exist, but they're very far and few between. And uh, I, I wanted to know a little bit more about why they thrive in other states and why they're not doing so well here. So if you're curious about stuff like that, this is definitely your episode. And Dave and I talk a lot about uh, other the other animals in Iowa and across the Midwest and how they're doing as well. So it's super fascinating, really interesting, and I think some really good stuff for outdoorsmen of all kinds, uh, hunters especially. So take a listen. Glad you're here and let's get into it. Dave, welcome to Woods and Waters Project podcast. I am so excited for you to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here and Excited to share some information about gray fox in Iowa. Yeah, me too. I am, I am personally absolutely fascinated by them. And I think, you know, this is kind of a, almost a selfish interview, but I think a lot of people that listen would find this really fascinating. And I think there has to be others like myself who did not know anything about these guys being born and raised in Iowa until later. And so I'm so excited you're here to tell us about them. Uh, before you tell us about Gray Fox, Dave, could you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, whatever you want to share? So I'm a wildlife research technician with the Iowa DNR. One of the responsibilities I have is working with fur bears in the state. That uh, There's close to 19 species of, of fur bears in the state. I work with setting seasons, work with surveys, research. For example, I've done research on river otters, some of the bobcats, but in my some of my past research has worked with pheasants, tracking pheasants, radio tracking deer, currently tracking turkeys in southern Iowa, and actually in some of your areas too, we're doing some radio telemetry on both the hens and the poles. So um, yeah, again from deer, I work with trumpeter swans. There's other things with Blanding's turtles. So there's really quite the variety of things I work with in the research section. But other things related to fur bears and gray fox include monitoring the diseases, the management of it, uh, looking at the harvest and population trends. For example, I'm just doing harvest 
here this week and looking at, uh, we have some of the lowest raccoon harvests in history, 34,000 raccoons compared to a high of 310,000 raccoons at one time. So I give information to the DNR, other groups, the publics. I also work with large carnivores, carnivores like bears, mountain lions, the wolves. And so pretty much all the fur bear species in the state, I, I work somewhat to degree with that. Oh, I will be giving a, a mountain lion and bear program at the Iowa State Fair this year as well. Some people find that really quite fascinating and, and maybe a podcast for another time for carnival. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be super cool. So again, one of the things we're working at and talk about today is gray fox in Iowa. And just kind of a brief overview, their population has declined probably by 90, 95% in the state. Um, and the question is, is why? Why are they declining? And that's some of the research on what we're trying to figure out. But the main theme is we had gray fox in Iowa in the past, and we, we just don't see them and see or get them on camera. We just don't see them like we used to. So that's uh, research has never been done for gray fox in Iowa. So that's will be the first. So um, that's something we'll we'll just chat about more too is about gray fox in Iowa. And uh, open to any questions too if you have any quick questions on you might have on gray fox in Iowa. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my, what I'm fascinated about, about gray fox is not, and maybe I didn't know to look for them or knew what I was looking at once upon a time, but growing up hunting most of my life and being outdoors since I was very young, I was not familiar with them until adulthood. And I have seen one before. And I know of folks that have tracked them and seen them in um, mostly Eastern and Southeastern Iowa, but it's such a rarity. And I didn't realize just how rare it was. And then, so I'm super curious why in Iowa, we're seeing such low numbers compared to other states, you know, who seem to have a plethora of them and like what we can do to help the numbers. Do we need to help the numbers? Like all of that. I'm just, I'm super curious about all of that. Yeah, so the numbers have been declining quite rapidly in the last 15 to 20 years. And there's a lot of questions we don't really know and hope to learn more. And we have some speculations, but uh, for people to see them, it is extremely rare. They are pretty much nocturnal. Uh, they're just pretty elusive. And just for people to see them is ex extremely rare. And in the, in the state now, they used to be fairly common, but Currently now, I think I have known only about six confirmed gray fox in the whole state of Iowa currently. So they have become even more extremely rare. But, you know, they, they do have, a, pulled up the map here, the U.S., they do have quite the, the distribution across the U.S. Um, some of the other states, especially Indiana, Ohio, some of the states to the east of us, the gray fox are doing extremely poor. But there's some other portions of the states further southern south they're doing okay and some of the populations are even further west are doing okay but we did some genetic studies with dawn redding she's a professor out of decora and luther college and comparing some of the dna and there is some variation between our grays in iowa genetic difference between those and western foxes too we really don't know a whole lot about how that impacts the population and, and such, but there is certainly some genetic variation between the states, especially west. But especially it seems like these in the central part are doing quite poorly. Just some of the basic biology, they are really quite a small fox, you know, 10 to 12 pounds compared to a red fox would easily be 12, 18, 20 pounds for a red fox. Um, so they do mate there in January through March, litters in, born in April, three to five pups or kits for the youngsters, 
they are carnivores, but they, occasionally they're omnivores. They'll eat even fruit, vegetables, or berries, um, particularly more of a forest, deciduous forest species rather than the gray fox, which is more a little more less trees, a little more grassland for the reds. And one unique about the red about the gray fox is how they can climb trees. It's really quite unique and one of the rare canines that can actually climb. So yeah, some of the things we do know is about the, some of their basic biology. There's some literature across the country. We do know some of their population trends. I'll get to one of those as well. Uh, we do have annual harvest records for gray fox in Iowa that date clear back to the 30s. We have records actually for all the fur-bearing species that date back to the 30s in the harvest records. Um, we do know some of the threats here to the population, but um, we're hoping to learn more. Uh, one of the things we were speculating too is that coyotes are hard on red foxes and gray foxes. We typically are finding red fox more and more in urban areas. And we speculate those coyotes, we do know coyotes are bullies and will kill red fox and gray fox. And with that disturbance, we speculate that, that uh, really the urban areas are more of a safety and security for these reds and grays. And actually there's pretty good food in these towns as well, plenty of rabbits, um, there's even people that are feeding feeding fox cat food, and but there's certainly seems to be good um, habitat in some ways in town, and and plenty of food too in some of these urban areas. So one of the things we do is we keep surveys for all our fur bearing species. Uh, this is done through there's a bow hunter survey in Iowa when hunters are out hunting deer archery they keep track of the fur bearing animals they see all 19 species they keep they keep a record of those and we really appreciate all those archers out there that voluntarily help and submit this information in these annual surveys so this is one on gray fox for a thousand hours of hunted the number of gray fox that are observed and um so typically it's been a decline in, in the sightings of gray fox for our archers in the state for over the years. So, I have, uh, I've gotten down, down the rabbit hole of the bow hunter survey. I recently actually just found that online. Um, I think I was looking up like numbers of something. I think uh, it was trapping related. I can't even remember. This was just like a week ago. And I stumbled upon the bow hunter survey and it was really fascinating. I think I just looked up the one from 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and that I, I just like, it's really interesting. Like it's really mm -hmm. interesting information. So I, I loved that. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I encourage people to, uh, if they get a survey, if they're interested to, you know, participate and that really helps keep track of the trends of a lot of our fur bearing species across the state. So this is uh some of our canine harvest that goes back to the 30s. Uh, this top line, here's the coyote harvest. In the state, uh, next we have the red fox. Um, here, this bottom line is our gray fox harvest. So some of our highest gray fox numbers, here's back in the, in the 1980s, we had over 2,000 gray fox harvested in the state back in 1980. And that number has just continued to decline. We had been down to three or four, and this year it was down to one. One gray fox was harvested in the entire state of Iowa this year. Um, so there's information for another time, but uh, some of our, so that's actually our red fox harvest. I misspoke. So the, the top line is actually our, our fox harvest. We used to harvest uh, 27,000 red fox in the state. 
Uh, that number has declined. It's typically been around 12, 15,000. It's, it's, it's been going up and down. Uh, the coyote harvest, yep. So it's kind of amazing, you know, there was very few coyotes here in Iowa back in the 60s and 70s, back to the 30s. And uh, the coyote harvest has really jumped the last few years. Um, two years ago, it was 15,000. Last year, it was 12,000. Uh, this year, for some reason, it dropped down to only 3,500 coyotes harvested this year. But partly we speculate is the price of the coyotes nearly dropped in half. They were averaging around $20, $22. The average price this year was, was around $10. So many of the animals harvest was extremely down, some of the lowest on raccoons in history, but it's also some of the lowest prices ever in history too. So some of our trapping numbers really trend well with the prices as well. What was really interesting is actually the number of trappers and fur harvesters out there is actually quite stable. It This year, surprisingly, actually increased by 40 trappers out there. But the grain of salt, the effort that they put in was actually really diminished. And likewise, the harvest was extremely down. But uh, none of those people yeah, bought their licenses, but really didn't trap too much. And, and uh, so the, the, you know, the harvest was, was really quite down in many of those species. Um, you know, looking at this too, I, I, I don't know why in my mind, but it makes a lot of sense, like just visually seeing it. In my mind, coyotes would have been on the higher side, but I guess, I mean, fox are more sought after fur. So, I mean, that does, that does make sense, mm -hmm. but, you know, growing up around coyote hunters and being a coyote hunter and just like living in my bubble, I would have thought coyote would have been a lot higher on the graph, like next to the red fox. And yeah. I, and I didn't personally, I didn't realize that there was such a low number of them in mm -hmm. the sixties and seventies. Yeah. Quite the low numbers. Um, so it's interesting, in these years, in the 60s and 70s, 80s, there was actually a bounty on Red Fox. So Iowa paid over nearly $2 million in bounties in these particular years. And so that's something that's been kicked around South Dakota, such they offer a bounty. Um, they've also provided traps. Um, unfortunately, they've really had a lot of abuse out in those states, and a lot of those um, very few animals found road kills found with tails in the Dakotas. And it's actually rumored a lot of good number of Iowa road killed coon and Nebraska coon actually go to South Dakota and get paid a bounty. The, the state pays bounty for, for, unfortunately, the abuse that goes on with that as well. It's been difficult to, to work with that. But um, yeah, so we have these numbers of harvest we keep track of in the 30s. And your listeners and the public can actually go online to our DNR website and they can pull, pull this information up. It's actually a report I'm working on currently, close to a 60 page report. And you can see the harvest numbers, population trends, spotlight counts, information that goes back to the 30s on all these fur bear species. So it's really quite interesting. You can actually see some of the trapping information. You can see, for example, the bobcat and otter, the method of take. You can see the catch per day and really quite a much detailed information on each of these species here that we have in the state. So again, you can go on that Iowa DNR website and it's under population trends or also called the logbook. And you can pull that up for all the past years and currently working on that today as well. Very cool. Well, I'll make sure to share that in the notes yeah. too for our yeah, listeners. We could, so they can we could put a that. link to some yeah. of that fur bear trends and some of the population. So that, in that, it also has all the other species. There's some really informa good information on deer. There's 
turkey information is, you know, everybody that that hunts and such out there, they into some of the nerdy kind of numbers, facts and figures, they can really get a lot of information from some of those reports. So some of our threats out there to the gray fox. So unfortunately, what we're finding is some of the disease, uh, especially distemper. We picked up four gray fox in Mason City since last, four of them since last November. Um, a pair of fox that was monitoring here this spring where the female showed up with distemper. Unfortunately, she was nursing, so we suspect we lost her plus all her litter, but then also the male was showed up wandering around sick, so we're afraid that we lost all the gray fox in Mason City. So the distemper, that's similar to distemper with the canines and the felines. So it's really similar strain for dogs and cats. So we encourage people to make sure they get their dogs and cats vaccinated. Uh, you know, the other part is to uh, make aware those outdoor cats, um, they need to, to be vaccinated as well. Typically they're not gonna last very long at, at all outside cat without being vaccinated. And plus then they have the risk of spreading that distemper to the wild foxes and animals as well. One thing we are learning is there's even uh, the grays are more susceptible, we believe, to distemper than than other any other canines. So they're really yeah, susceptible. But one thing recently learning is there's actually different strains of distemper out there as well, similar to like different strains of COVID with distemper. And so that's being researched as well and, and hopefully trying to learn more about the different strains and variations. Uh, so there's other diseases like parvo. There's also the amdo virus, which is another kind of related to parvo. Uh, one really big thing is mange, and that's really what we've really seen in red fox areas where we'll have a pretty good population. My experience, especially growing up in Northwest Iowa, will have a good population. Mange will come in there and just knock the heck out of them. And they'll population be down for a while. They'll kind of bounce back. Then mange will go through and uh, knock them. And especially maybe you guys have seen the coyotes with the mange too. It's, it's got to be a, just a terrible way um, parasite to have. And it just got to be a terrible way to perish too. It's those gets in there. They rub their fur off. And they got scabs on them and sores. And they just look terrible when they're missing their hair. So that mange is, especially in the red fox and the coyotes, jumped up and down and certainly a, an issue and problem for them too. So one thing we've seen is uh, road kills, vehicle collisions, certainly on some of these fox and critters too. So certainly we believe other predators, coyotes or bullies on them where um, we've seen where they can harass, bully, and even kill some of these. We believe uh, bobcats could potentially even be uh, predate even small gray fox, small young. And we even had where people's dogs, even in town, have killed gray fox and killed other things as well. So do you have anything to chime in? Questions? Um, well, I know that we have more to talk about, but something that's on my mind about them is with, with the decline and the numbers so low, at what point does a state or area decide to do a reintroduction? You know, when is something like that typically decided? Is that um, mm -hmm. something that would ever be visited with, a gray, with the gray fox, you think? Yes. Or? So first part is, um, step is kind of determine well what's what's the problem it's kind of what's the problem going on here learn more about that and with the research and then with the research figuring out you know what you know what and if what we can do for that as well so um, 
Yeah, it's a disease problem. Uh, the other part is the habitat, is there's things we can do to better do our habitat. And so some ways to really make a good assessment before we were to try any of those other steps there as well. But um, so yeah, really, it's really kind of scratching our heads and, and but learning too what's going on. And so there is a cooperative study going on with Indiana and Ohio. And so we're there a couple years ahead of us. So but we plan to collaborate and actually learn from them as well. And they have some of the exact same questions going on in Indiana and Ohio as well. That's really, that's awesome. I, you know, I wonder, and, and there's, you know, obvious reasons in my mind, and there's probably something I'm not thinking of, but what it seems, and this is just what it seems like, I can't say for sure, but it seems like bobcat and coyote populations are doing well um, or growing. At least it seems that way to me. I, I don't know mm -hmm. if that's actually true. Um, so I'd be wondering why they are doing so well in comparison to a gray fox, you know, that yeah. would be my like question too, but I could see them being their predators to the gray fox. So that makes a lot of sense. Just that in itself makes sense, but. Yeah. So that's a good question. And those bobcat numbers are doing extremely well. We've uh, increased our bag limits. We increased our zone. We increased by two counties last year. Um, we increased, uh, there's three bobcats can be taken in the bag in Southern Iowa. Uh, the bobcat harvest did decrease by 70 animals last year. We're about 970 bobcats taken in the state. It's actually a pretty good, you know, that's a pretty good take on bobcats, but it seems their numbers are still doing well and they're still actually increasing and dispersing around the state as well. There's a number of counties that are not open we encourage people in those closed areas to re, to help with help record that information, document sightings, and that can actually help to open those counties into another into open them into the zone in future years as we get that information, and the bobcats continue continue their expansion. And typically, the coyote numbers, you know, they're typically doing fairly well. I I did hear some anecdotal information that some of the take on coyotes have been down a little bit in some areas, but it seems like they're certainly quite numerous and plentiful in, in many areas across the state. So we, there is habitat changes, especially with the age of our trees and forests across the state. And that's some of the things they're viewing in other Midwestern states about the age of the forest and loss of that early successional forces out there. Uh, loss of our brushy fence lines, fence rows. And without some of that weedy farming and stuff, there's the loss of their prey and some of the rodents and some just some of their the habitat and their food base out there has changed as well. There's and even some of the things, you know, with uh, we don't see the some of the bugs and inverts we used to see with more clean farming. And then that affects, you know, some of the other as the population prey and how that dynamics go is just some of the changes we've seen out there as well. So. So that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about, well, gosh, there's, there's like never ending, well, I guess it ends somewhere, but there's never ending layers to this, you know, just thinking about the pheasant and quail populations and absolutely like insects. I don't even, I didn't even think about that and like how that has a direct impact as well. So it makes a lot of sense. A lot of things tie in there and, and there's a lot of things we don't know about pesticides and neonicotinoids yeah. and um, there's other things that have an impact on our game bird populations as well, including disease and weather and habitat. There's really quite a number of variables and factors that weigh into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So some of the things we don't know about gray foxes an exact count on the population, they're really difficult to survey. We have the bow hunter survey as one way we keep tabs on. We also have the spring spotlight survey. And that's where we go out in the spring, drive the 
rather the annual routes, spotlight, and count every fur-bearing animal we see out there. Our numbers of uh, raccoon have been on a steady increase with our spotlight, but during those spotlights, we also count deer, fox, badgers, and any other fur bears we, we see out there. So, you know, the part is, talk, you know, what can we do if, about reversing their population that is decline? If, can, we, can anything be done? But again, the first question is, well, what is, what is the main problem out there? What, why is there decline? We have some uh, ideas, but uh, with hopefully with the research with Iowa State, we can kind of get more information and, and kind of go from there, make an informed, better decision. So currently, there's never been a gray fox study ever done in Iowa before. Uh, there was a red fox study done, and there's really quite neat book called The Red Fox in Iowa, Ron Andrews. And it's really hard and rare book to find, but it actually is online. You can go and do a Google search, Red Fox in Iowa, and you can learn more about, um, yeah, as I think of that scan, and that's actually on the internet, Red Fox in Iowa. So what we're doing is we're starting a pilot study we actually have five GPS collars. They're hybrids and they also have VHF on them as well. To, uh, we're gonna try to attempt to capture gray fox actually with the help of trappers out there um, to be able to live trap these, quickly slap a, a GPS collar on these and release them back in the same area within a short time. But mainly it's to look at the survival and particularly the type of mortality we have out there with these GPS collared gray fox. Um, we are especially looking for any dead fox that might come across the state as well, from road kills or accidental trappings or if people just find a gray fox. We're really interested in obtaining those and have them necropsied at Iowa State to learn out what a, the mortality on those particular foxes. So again, if you find one, know of any, we're really quite interested in any of those reports. So we hopefully looking to look at habitat use of gray fox, some of their home ranges. Um, that's really never been known for gray fox, but it really varies. Uh, talking to Ohio, some of their home ranges, it looks like anywhere they could cover an area from particularly 700 acres over to 1,600 acres easily for some of their home range. So they, that's pretty good size, but what it's described is that's actually pretty small home range compared to a red fox. So we're hoping to look at and just learn more about some of the diseases of collared and non-collared fox, um, and potentially even look at some of the, the DNA samples and actually do some analysis between different foxes from our foxes versus other surrounding state foxes as well. So, And you said that this has, um, it has just started. So have you, um, you have not yet collared them, right? Correct. That's correct. Or, We've attempted, yeah. we, and I'll cover that in a couple slides. We sure. actually tried yeah. to do some live trapping. Uh, they were very difficult to catch into the live trap. Uh, we did have some, it was actually in Mason City was attempting the, the live trapping, but unfortunately that female, we suspended trapping this spring when we, she, we noticed on camera she was pregnant. We suspended trapping and then it was actually um, here about a month ago is when we discovered her dead and where she discovered very high or hot with the distemper virus. So unfortunately, I was hoping to trap and track some gray fox in Mason City, but I'm not aware of any gray fox currently in north central Iowa currently. But we will be looking and hopefully be able to capture live trap here some going forward. So ways we're doing is actually using trail cameras in areas we find the grays and some ways to uh, monitor in some ways narrow down their core area and then that's helped us kind of key in and focus on areas where we can potentially trap with these large cage traps. 
So it seems to be these cameras seem kind of be kind of efficient use of time and money too. Saves time running the search and gas time. To, and um, so if we do catch these, we took take, take um, biological measurements, take a blood sample, take a tissue sample, and then also then place one of those radio collars on one of these critters. Again, this, we use the cell cameras that can kind of monitor their activities and use uh, just because they are especially so secretive and elusive. There's uh, people in Mason City, a number of people that had the fox regularly in their backyard and they have, hadn't observed a fox in years, but the fox were pretty much living in their neighborhood, but mainly because the fox was nocturnal and so secretive, they, they had no idea that the fox were in their backyard. So what we're doing now is taking, you know, reports from people from all over the state. We pass through Facebook, social media, some articles, you know, asking for public sightings of these fox, and then some ways narrow that down. And then with that area, get some trail cameras out. So I have volunteers and myself I'm kind of coordinating about 140 cameras across the state, trying to pin these down. And there's a lot of cameras out in many of these sections already. And so people with running cameras encourage those to um, report those if they can. And there's even ways you can kind of attract and maybe get a better picture of a gray fox if you suspect one in the area. One thing I use, is actually go to a local chicken house and obtain the chicken litter and the feathers especially and place those out in front of the camera and it's interesting everything stops and investigates that chicken poop from deer to coyotes to squirrels raccoons everything is really quite curious for some reason on that chicken litter another thing for some of the carnivores especially fox they like uh, sweet smelling stuff as I use a combination of bacon grease and honey and that can be smeared and spread out and it seems like a number of um, animals even deer will even stop and smell and that bacon has everything including us we like that bacon smell and that bacon odor so uh, it's one way to start way to get a carnivore on camera so again, how we use those cameras to kind of narrow down their core area. So it's, so here's an example of some fox I was trapping in an urban area in Mason City. This is actually a large bobcat. It's a double door, it's a live trap. And these fox were coming in regularly to the bait and cat food but the gray fox would never go into this live trap. They were just quite elusive and quite wary. Even after three weeks, they wouldn't even, They had tough catching in a live trap. Other states, East Coast, they have pretty good luck with live traps and cage traps, but the studies, some of the studies in Feather West, the gray fox are really quite wary of the live traps and they're really difficult to catch. So I'm experimenting with some different trap designs too to try to live trap some of our grays for a research project. So here's a gray fox going under a chain link fence. So even attempting different ways by making a blind set, for example, to get them going, coming or going under a fence. So they've been more elusive, tougher to trap than I ever expected. So some of the field work. So here's the collar for the gray fox. Um, in comparison in size, here's a Sharpie pen. So the gray fox, again, they're only about 10 pounds. So not much bigger than a, than a house cat. And so the collar is actually fairly, not much different than a collar you'd put on a house cat either. Yeah, so it looks so small. <laughs> it is really tiny. quite small, Dainey. So the, the part is that we want to, be concerned about the fox and not really try to change his behavior or anything too obtrusive for the fox. 
So that in diameter is not much bigger around than a pop can. So this has a, a GPS collar portion of it. And so that collects GPS locations on it, typically three to five times a day. So we can learn more about their den site, hopefully in some ways even track down the dens in their litter. And this all has a VHF on it as well. So then that's used to help get close to the fox. And um, so this information is stored, the GPS points are stored in part of the collar. And then what this unit is called is a, is a base station. And what you have to do is get close to the fox. And this will connect, these two devices will connect and this will, all the GPS points will be downloaded to this base station. And then from this base station, then that gets hooked up to your computer and you can download all the, the location information from that, from this particular unit. Oh, so this is a little different um, for, in comparison, some of the, the collars we have on turkeys or swans or some of those and some of our cranes, that information goes we can get directly from our computers. Those typically have a little solar panel on them and they have more power source, power supply. And so we're able to, we don't have to go out and physically get close to each animal to get the downloads. With this, we're gonna have to be with typically within sight range to get the downloads from these collars. So again, we have, cooperating with Iowa State, and we do have five of these collars that we hope to get out potentially by this fall. And so we're looking for help from trappers and such that do have gray fox, and even if they do catch one, we're able to collar and uh, release those animals with, after fitting a collar just within short time, collecting some of that information and just putting these on. They just pretty much strap these on and they, and they with um, bolts and locking bolts, they just kind of bolt the collar right onto the, right into place, get the appropriate size for each grader. That's awesome. So we had a, we, I had a previous guest on the podcast, his name's James, and he is out of Washington. And we had a really good episode about collaring mountain lions and the work that he does for the state of Washington with that. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just, oh my gosh, fascinating because his big thing is uh, he's a houndsman. He hunts, he hunts with dogs, but he's collaring them and then working with his dogs, which, cause just the average person can't do that in the state of Washington. Uh -huh. um, but with him being hired on to do it, what they're finding is hunting with hounds in the state is actually protecting the lions. And there's less incidents with people because in the past, they were finding that people would, you know, there's a little girl who like was hiding in a bush playing hide and seek. And she went into a bush where a mountain lion was and she got attacked. Um, and so that's an example of something they want to prevent happening, right? For the girl and the lion, for people and the lion. So that what they were finding was after collaring them and hunting them with hounds is lions were learning to not be so, um, they're learning to be cautious is what I'm trying to say. So they, instead of coming within a hundred yards of people, they would come, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't come within a thousand yards of people, yeah. for example. So I thought that was so fascinating, like what you can learn from that. Mm -hmm. um, and I have been, I've been curious about those studies ever since that conversation. It was, it was mm -hmm. enlightening for sure. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly learn a lot from these collared animals and especially mountain lions. So there's currently studies in South Dakota with mountain lions collared and actually quite a few uh, mountain lions in Nebraska that are currently radio collared and some really not too far from Iowa. But um, yeah. so we're actually seeing a, a fair number of mountain lions and sightings in the state of Iowa each year and especially this year too, more than ever. Yeah. And are, they, are they, is it kind of like a Sasquatch thing where you need proof for you guys to say like, if someone calls in and says, hey, I saw one, you need the the uh, visual proof, right, for that to count? No, we, that... <laughs> we don't, but it's it's helpful. Yes, so I'm sure. The, 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 the kind of the challenge is, is I receive calls, it seems like almost daily. 
and so in some ways there there's a part that myself i have to be honest become kind of jaded yeah um, sure <laughs> for example the calls here recently of a mountain lion in the ditch south of clear lake and so the the caller is convinced they have a dead mountain lion in the ditch and so you drive down there and it ends up being a coyote or a dog or, oh. or certainly another species and you would think boy sure. you know the thing's dead it's laying in the ditch you would think they would know the difference on what it is yes. so so unfortunately <laughs> um I apologize as many times we want that confirmed evidence because so many times you know 98 percent of these calls are something else uh, another example uh, a lady called from cylinder she says i have a mountain in my grove and i'm thinking oh okay uh, you know can you tell me more about it she says well i didn't actually see it but my, my husband saw it says well well can i talk to him well he didn't actually see it either but uh we we heard something in the grove <laughs> so the you know the challenge on my part is well do you write that one down as a mountain lion or do you so it's it's good it's good in some ways we'd like to have some type of evidence and something that's credible and so there's another thing, resources, you can actually go on our website and see the, there's over a couple hundred sightings and confirmed in the state since the 90s. That's on our website as well. Um, people like to think the DNR is stocking mountain lions, <laughs> yeah. and, um, releasing, and it's some of that, people really truly believe that. And in yes, some ways, <laughs> it would, it'd be kind of crazy for the DNR to do that. There's no protection on mountain lions in the state. Uh, most of them really typically don't last too long in Iowa. People find out about them and typically they're shot and killed usually pretty quickly. But there's a number this year, especially that have been persisting and, and several mountain lions have been seen quite regularly the last since December and January in central Iowa, eastern Iowa. And there's um, one killed east of Des Moines here this spring. So there's actually, they're really not that unusual, uncommon here in the state. So on when I was uh, uh, when I was 14, I grew up in eastern Iowa near the Quad Cities, right on the Iowa-Illinois border. And when I was 14, I was bow hunting with my dad. And we were bringing my bow up on a rope, right? So it's, it's just getting light enough where you can see um, in front of your face without a light or anything like that. And as we're bringing my bow up on a rope, I freeze watching my bow swinging over the top of what I am very certain is a mountain lion. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, can't speak. And I'm trying to hit my dad, but I'm like frozen looking at this mountain lion walking underneath just like maybe a foot beneath my bow that's swinging below this rope on this rope and my dad's like yeah and then it was like no big deal and I remember being pretty terrified at the time and there was confirmed sightings from a friend who lived on a property nearby and then it seems like about once every five years I hear about my friends that are back home on um, they catch them on their trail camera and it's on the river, it's near the, it's near the Mississippi. So I think my understanding is they're passing through a whole bunch of our friends and neighbors, get them on a trail camera. And then we don't hear from any mountain lions for a couple of years. And then a few years come and it happens again. And it does seem like they just pass through though, from my yeah. experience. Yeah, but it seems like that's the indication on, on majority of these. They, they're typically young male cats that are kick, being kicked out of the the Dakotas, the Black Hills, they're young males. If they don't get kicked out, they, they can get killed by the resident Tom. So in some ways it's kind of like male cats on the farm. They're gonna get kicked out or killed and they're out looking, these young males are out looking for females. They're looking for territory. And so the vast majority of the mountain lions we've had here in the state killed have been young males. One of them from the Dakotas traveled through Iowa and 
ended up clear out on the East Coast and was hit by a car. There's mountain lines from the Black Hills, traveled clear to Oklahoma, 670 some miles, some up in Northwest Minnesota, Saskatchewan. One female went out to Utah and back close to 1200 miles. So they are really quite transient. But there's been more that um, been hanging around in Iowa here this summer, central Iowa again. And um, so there's, there's certainly some hanging around in the state. So yeah, that's what I always thought. I mean, I, I vividly remember that. And, you know, sometimes when you tell people that depending on like who, uh, you know, um, I have just throughout my life, like my adulthood, and I've lived in different parts of Eastern Iowa. Uh, I have great friends who aren't really outdoorsy at all. And then I have the extreme side, you know, who are extremely outdoorsy. And I remember sometimes people just looking at me like I'm insane talking about seeing a mountain lion and um, just not believing me at all. And again, though, I have, I've had, I have friends that one time we were on a sales call in my old, in old job and there was a coyote dead on the side of the road. And one of my friends who is from Chicago and another friend who is from Cedar Rapids, they would laugh if they heard this. So they would think it's great, but they go, what is that? And I go, um, a coyote. And uh, well, one of the girls, she's like, she says, she's like a coyote. She's like, you mean a coyote? And I was like, you mean a coyote? And she's like, yeah, a coyote. And it was hilarious. But the other girl who was from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, so Eastern Iowa for reference for people, she's like, what do you mean that's a coyote? And I said, it's a, it's a coyote. Like they're all over Iowa. You know, I'm like, it just probably got hit on the side of the road. And she's like, we have thousands of coyotes in Iowa. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And she's like, how is it safe for people to just be outside? <laughs> Had zero, you know, zero idea that like, um, what's out there. Uh, and I mean, really, truly had no idea. So I always thought that was such a funny conversation, but just perspective, you know? Yeah. So it's really quite amazing that, you know, there's quite a plentiful coyote population out there, but many people have never seen a coyote or even believe they exist in the state. And uh, so some of the others, the fear of coyotes being attacked, there's never been attacked by a coyote or a mountain lion in Iowa, but there's, I need to validate people are quite fearful, but what's really, I was quite amazed is how fearful and paranoid many of the people in Iowa are for the occasional mountain lion that'll be in the state, but then they'll travel to the Black Hills and what has a population of several hundred, over 200 mountain lions in the Black Hills, a small area, and those same people will sleep in a tent in the Black Hills and not really think anything of it, where there's yes. actually more <laughs> mountain lions are more, certainly more plentiful. Yeah, so we're point. here in Iowa, we'll have lockdowns of schools and even something of a potential rumor of a mountain lion just being in the, within a, within a 60 mile radius. So just some of the difference and changes and it's part of is them not being very common and, and people just in some ways really not knowing some of the information about mountain lions too. Yeah. So um, some of the conclusions on some of the gray fox is they are, we believe a valuable and pretty much understudied animal here in the Midwest. No studies ever been done on the grays. Um, certainly um, many people, the public, the population and the DNR is concerned about the decline. Again, you know, we used to trap close to 1200 gray fox in the state and now we're down to just a handful of reports across and uh, you know what are threats and concerns on those fox especially some of the disease and the habitat changes going on with those and so in some ways we like to just kind of understand some of the basic things and we'll leave us um, it's, it's worthwhile to put some additional manpower and research and learning more about these and that's especially where the public has helped in many of these studies in the past um, and currently for, um, for one of the things I'm working on now too is reporting of trumpeter swan nest in the state so most of those sightings a lot of those come in from the public 
And especially with these gray fox, with those sightings. So, you know, I'm one of the main persons that's working on these gray fox and only spend a fraction of my time working with the grays. It's really difficult for me to be able to do a, in the DNR to, to know where they're at and do a comprehensive survey. And so that's really with people out there and especially with trail cameras and almost every many sections of the state and people are their eyes and ears and are some of our resources out there. So really appreciate that and people help with bald eagle nests, the crane sightings, swans, all these other kind of rare and elusive species out there too. Yeah, that's great. And that that's part of, you know, maybe my question here as like at the end is like, how can folks help with that? Um, you know, the folks of Iowa, like how can we help with that? Um, outside of even reporting sightings, or is that where it starts? You know, I'm I'm definitely interested in interested in helping however I can. I just think they're an amazing animal, so I I would love to yeah. I would love to see more of them for sure. Yep. So the good point is, or good thing is support habitat organizations out there like Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever. There's the Iowa Trappers Association. There's a number of things that help organizations that help with habitat funding of the research. There's things like um, buying a duck stamp, for example, that money goes towards habitat. The other is buying your hunting and fishing license. So the DNR, we get majority of our money from the hunting and fishing tax dollar. Many people believe we just get it out of the general fund or general their general taxes go for that. But that's really not necessarily entirely true. We get tax on the sale of guns and ammo, but then also the money again from the hunting and fishing licenses. But as we see the number of people that hunt and fish and buy licenses, that's been on a steady decline. For hunting and fishing and that's where the majority of our money comes from for this research and so it we're not able to do we don't have the money and the resources like we'd like to do the research and so those other expenses continue incline and the money coming in goes down so unfortunately we're able to do less than we'd like with um because of the loss of some of the funding and some of the loss some of our um, personnel and stuff are at all time low in some of these areas too. So people can support these programs, return in the sightings and, and help out. So we've had a number of people that even have donated money for some of the trail cameras. They've interested in Gray Fox, donated money for like the base station and some of the just general equipment and items that we knew for that. And so that really goes a long ways um, that they had helped with some of our trumpeter swan restoration and all those is just the hundreds and hundreds of people that have contributed and make some of these restoration, some of these research projects and things successful. And uh, so, so some of the reasons I've heard is why do we want to have species like gray fox, trumpeter swans, peregrine falcons, some of these rare animals, why do we want them in, in the state? Some of the answers I've heard is, well, they're part of our heritage. They were here when our forefathers settled the state. Some of these are just big, beautiful birds or animals. They enjoy seeing them. The others, they're ambassadors for our habitat, things like water quality, our environment, cleaning our environment and such. Had a neat comment from a grandmother from Des Moines. She said, in regards to quality of life, she said, I'm afraid of my kids, my grandkids moving out of state to a better place to live. She believed if we improve our quality of life here in Iowa, our habitat or water quality, that my kids and my grandkids might stick around here in the state. So I really thought that was quite a neat answer about quality of life here in Iowa. So that uh, brings up the question, why do you wanna see in your listeners gray fox thrive here in Iowa and other species? So. Yeah, what, and why do I? Yes. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I it kind of actually in a similar sense to what the grandmother said is I am born and raised in Iowa and I love to travel and I love to learn and explore and go other places. But Iowa is my home. And as an outdoorsman, I think Iowa has a lot to offer. Um, I can only imagine what it used to offer, you know, before humans and <laughs> everything came through and uh, maybe caused some issues along the way. But the outdoors is my happy place. It's very healing for me. Uh, it's part of my livelihood and it's just what makes me really happy. And um, I, I just want to see Iowa be the best it can be and see other people cherish it and love it and appreciate it and not want to get out of, not get out of here the second they, you know, graduate high school kind of thing. Um, I think Iowa is a beautiful place. And so I think whatever I can do to help take care of it. And the first time I saw a gray fox and found out that they are, they are here, I had no idea. And I just had an initial pull to want to see them and hearing the numbers are low, like protect them and whatever I can do it. It's almost unexplainable, but, um, there's multiple reasons for me. Mm -hmm. I just think they're amazing. Yep. Yep. Very good. Yeah. So. And thank you so much for this. Like, this is super fascinating. There are so many things just even beyond the gray Fox, just things to think about of, um, like our coyote and our bobcat and our Fox numbers and our trapping numbers and something that, oh gosh, I've had a few different trappers on the podcast now and we get into this a little bit, uh, but talking about how trapping number of trappers isn't necessarily dipping a whole lot, but their, um, how much they're trapping for the year or what they're trapping for the year is changing significantly. It sounds like. And so I find that super fascinating. And I understand the, uh, the price of fur, um, what they're worth, you know, what they're getting for them. Um, but I think there's like a lot of layers there and I just find that super fascinating Mm -hmm. and, uh, wonder what that's going to look like, um, in 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. There's really been quite the changes. Oh, and just to let you know, we are DNR offering some beginner trapper courses coming up this fall, this late summer and fall, and we'll have people demonstrating different trap types, different trap techniques, and there'll be uh, locations scattered around the state. So check out the DNR website for learn to trap workshops and we'll have door prizes like free traps, some stakes, and just basically instructions on how you can get started with some of the trapping out there as well. Awesome. I love that. And I'll definitely share that. I try to share that stuff as much as I can. My boyfriend and I are actually hosting a small game workshop in the middle of August. for one of those classes as well. So we'll get a little bit into, we're gonna do more like rabbit and squirrel and raccoon hunting, a um, little bit of like hunting with hounds and a little bit of trapping as well. Um, we're really excited to teach that because I always thought I was gonna be like this deer crazed hunter and I love deer hunting. Uh, just growing up in Iowa, I thought that's what I was supposed to love, but I am between the birds and the small game, I get more giddy about that than I do deer most of the time. (laughs) So I'm, I'm excited to be a part of that also. Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Any, any other, um, like parting words of wisdom on the, on the red Fox at all? No. Um, again, I just encourage the red Fox. I said the red Fox. Oh Oh my gosh. The gray Fox. Yeah. Yeah. Encourage (laughs) people if they're willing and able to help out we could use volunteers to help with some of the sightings on these and uh, just some ways monitor these fox and so really appreciate the public support and passion out there on all these species and how they're they want to care and do the right thing for many of these animals and and that's uh, the passion is really great to see and that where people would like to uh be passionate and protect Iowa and and it comes down to the quality of life that we have here too. And I will end this part of the podcast by asking you 
a similar question, like why do you think protecting these animals and being aware is so important? Like, why is it important to you? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it comes down to things I value and uh, we protect, we really protect the things we value. And so I'm really passionate about, especially working with the youth, working with the public, in some ways to get them interacting, where they engage with that species, where they then develop a connection. And once they develop the connection, they develop uh, really connects to an ownership, ownership of the animals, ownership of the natural resources. And once they really take that ownership is where the people really protect really protect what, what they value. And so that's a really cool thing out there. And so that's really something I'm really fond of is protecting something I value. And that includes the animals and the natural resources, the hunting tradition of the state. And so all of those are really quite important and valuable to me. Amen. That is... That is a great way to end to end this, even though I think this is just the beginning of these conversations and I will make sure I share these resources in the notes. And thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about the Gray Fox today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave, so much for your time today. And this, this was a fantastic podcast. We're just so excited to have you now and have you back. So stay tuned. There is more to come from Dave and everyone for, you know, everyone that's here. Thank you so much. Please leave us a review if you would. And until next time, get out there. <laughs>